If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 12. We finished off last week on verse 4, so we'll pick up today on verse 5. Let me give you just a little background so you understand why we're at where we are in verse 5. God brought the children of Israel with a great mixed multitude out of Egypt. After ten mighty plagues, he brought them to the Red Sea. And if you've seen a, an aerial photograph of the area, there's a very narrow valley that goes through huge, tall mountains on either side. And God brought them through this little, narrow valley to the shores of the Sea of Reeds, which our Bibles call the Red Sea. And they're kind of traps. They can't go to the left. They can't go to the right. The sea behind them is very deep. And here comes the Egyptian army. Now what do they do? They begin to panic. What? God brought us out here to be slaughtered? But no. God puts himself between the children of Israel and the advancing Egyptian army in a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. To the Egyptians, it's a pillar of cloud, it's great darkness. To the children of Israel, it's a pillar of fire, and they have great light. And God has Moses hold out the rod, and God separates the Red Sea and makes a path where the children of Israel go through on dry ground. Why doesn't the Egyptian army immediately chase them? Because God's in the way. And then God removes himself from between them. And Pharaoh and his army charge off into the Red Sea, and God allows the water to close back over, and Pharaoh finds out the chariots don't float. And God has completely destroyed the Egyptian army. They're never again a power throughout history. And he brings the children of Israel into the wilderness where there's no food and there's no water. So he lets them starve to death, right? No, he feeds them manna from heaven each and every morning. Every morning except the Sabbath, Shabbat. So on the day before the Sabbath, God provides a double portion of manna. But they're thirsty. So God provides water from the rock. And for 40 years, feeds and waters the children of Israel as they wander through the wilderness. He overthrows the giants, Sihon and Og, and destroys their kingdoms, for they wouldn't let the children of Israel pass through. And now, 40 years have passed, and the children of Israel are in what's today Jordan, just on the other side of the Jordan River, ready to come into the Promised Land. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses stands up before all the people and says, you're not ready. When you cross over into the promised land that God gives you, and you turn away from God and start worshiping pagan idols, then great destruction is going to come. So he makes them listen for a couple of days as he gives them the book of Deuteronomy to explain to them what they owe God, what God expects of them, what God has commanded of them to prepare them as they get ready to cross the river and go into the promised land. So in the first four verses, God says through Moses, when you get into the land, 
and you see it's bountiful in produce. When he says it's a land of milk and honey, he doesn't mean that there's rivers running down the land, one full of milk and one full of honey, right? That's not what he means. He means it's good for agriculture. That the land produces fruit bountifully and vegetables bountifully, and there's good grass for the sheep and the cattle. And there'll be plenty of food for everybody. But there are also in the land pagan idolaters who are going to try to teach them their pagan religions. So in the first four verses, God through Moses says, destroy the places where they worship their gods. Destroy their idols. Destroy their altars. Do not use such things to worship me. That's verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. And then here comes verse 5. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. So they've not even gone into the land yet. And Moses says, God is going to choose a place, a city. In fact, it's a mountaintop. And that's where they are to go to worship the Lord our God. Where did he choose? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Why did he choose Jerusalem? And when did he choose Jerusalem? From the beginning. From the beginning. Aha. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. What does the name Genesis mean? In the beginning. So your words were well chosen when you said he chose Jerusalem in the beginning. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. Which says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. You know, in Hebrew, that's Hanani, but it means more than just here I am. What's it mean? Here I am and I'm ready to listen and do what you got for me. Verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Which mountain was that? It's what we call today the Temple Mount. It's the mountain where Messiah was crucified. How did God know back in Genesis chapter 22 where Messiah would be crucified? He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Go up to the book of John chapter 10 in the New Testament. John chapter 10. Verses 1 through 5. I'm sorry. I actually mean Joshua chapter 10. Uh, Joshua chapter 10. They both start with a J. I should have been a doctor if you've ever looked at my writing. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. 
Moses did not get to go into the promised land, right? He's buried somewhere on or near Mount Nebo. So who led the children of Israel across the river into the land? Joshua did. That's why we had to come to Joshua chapter 10 verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek. What an odd name, Adonai Zedek. What's Adonai mean? My Lord is Zedek righteousness. My Lord is righteousness. Hmm. King of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. That they greatly feared because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Notice Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon are cities. But back in those days, every city had a king. Mm -hmm. Saying, come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon, and made war against it. So even before the children of Israel settle the land, and before King David buys the temple mount from the inhabitants, the Jebusites, Jerusalem is referred to here as Jerusalem, which is interesting. What does the name Jerusalem mean? It comes from Yeru, they will see shalom, peace. They will see peace, meaning this will be the center of the Messianic kingdom. Now the children of Israel have just gone into the land, but we find that even before they have settled the land and taken possession of what used to be the city of the Jebusites, God's already told them that this is where Messiah will be crucified, buried, and resurrected, and is where Messiah will rule and reign, he who is the Prince of Peace in his eternal kingdom. They're in the city of Jerusalem. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. So verses 1 through 4, don't worship me where the pagans worship their gods. Instead, I'm going to choose the place, and there you will worship me. And verses 6 and 7 tell us things that are limited to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 6 says, there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices. Why can't we just go into one of our backyard farms here in Georgia and do a sacrifice under God? God said, don't do it just anywhere. Do it in a place where I tell you so. Only at the temple in Jerusalem can you do a sacrifice and an offering to God. Is there a temple there today? No. So you cannot do a sacrifice or offering to the Lord today. What happens, though, when they rebuild the temple here shortly? Will the sacrifices resume? They will resume. 
So burnt offerings and sacrifices can only go to Jerusalem. What's the next words? Your tithe. Where can the tithe be taken? To Jerusalem. The heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So all these things can only go to Jerusalem. What was the tithe used for? To feed the Levites and the priests so that they could do the services in the temple. Verse 7, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God. What does that mean? It means to literally eat the sacrifices, right? Other than the burnt offering, when you take a sacrifice up to the temple and sacrifice it to God, you get a portion of the meat back and you have a big barbecue. And when you eat that barbecue before the Lord, you're rejoicing in the fact that God has provided the food for us. He provides for us. He cares for us. Question. Yes. Uh, uh, I know that when the God's Moedim feasts, uh, especially for uh, Passover tabernacles, right. where you're supposed to bring enough, or if you've come from a long way and you can't bring your own sacrifice and you buy it there, that you're supposed to be able to have enough to feed the poor and those who are not able. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. When God says, do not appear before me empty-handed, right. he means bring along enough food that you can share with the poor so that everyone can celebrate and worship God. Uh, is is that also applicable to these, in, I guess, individual sacrifices? That, you know, you know, goodwill or whatever. If, if you know, if a person comes and makes just you know, not not one of the ordained or or Moedim feasts. Is that the answer to that is share? no. They would not share. It's not that they would not share. They're not required by God to bring to share. Okay. So if you brought a free will offering to the temple one day, did you have to bring enough to feed everybody in Jerusalem? The answer is no. No. But at the appointed feast, the three pilgrim festivals, Passover and Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks and Tabernacles, yes, you're required to bring enough to share. Yep. Good. So verse 7, there you shall eat before the Lord your God. Talking about the sacrifices. Do you worship God best on an empty stomach or when you're nice and full? That's what it's talking about. And you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So bringing the sacrifices to the temple was acknowledging that God provided the food for us. And we worship God for it. The big mistake the northern kingdom did when they went off into idolatry was when the crops and harvests would come in and they had all this food and they feasted, they would go and do sacrifices to Baal and Ishtar to thank, to thank them for the food. Yeah, you can see how God would look down and go, really? You think they provided it? So you can see how that would make God offended, and it did. Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. That means two different things. One is, in the wilderness, if somebody wanted to do a sacrifice, where did he do it? 
wherever he wanted to. There wasn't a designated place yet. But once God established the temple in Jerusalem, then that was the only place where you could do a sacrifice or bring the offering or the tithe. Right, and that's because they had not yet come and established the temple at Jerusalem. So he says, when I have established my place in Jerusalem. But till then, you're right, wherever the tabernacle was, they sacrificed. Once the temple was established on the temple mount, was it ever moved? No. That's when it became a fixed place. Yes, ma'am. Wasn't the tabernacle set up every time they stopped going around the mountain? Yes, the tabernacle was set up every time they stopped marching. Were the, but the people weren't required to bring their sacrifices to the altar at the tabernacle? They were not required to yet at that point, no. I see. Mm -hmm. And that's what God is saying is up to now, you've done whatever you wanted to do. That's going to stop. Now you're, you're, I'm going to fulfill my promise of bringing you into the land. And now you're going to do things my way. So the first meaning is the sacrifices, tithes, and offerings will all now go to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. But the second is when he says, every man doing whatever's right in his own eyes, were the children of Israel being obedient to God in the wilderness? Answer is no. And what would happen when they would say, oh, I don't know, let's say, build a golden camp. God would break out a plague upon them until Moses would intervene on behalf of the people and pray for a prayer of repentance. But he says, when I bring you into the land, you will be obedient, or else what? He'll send plagues, armies, famines, and ultimately take you out of the land into captivity. Right. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Yeah, you could look at it that way. All right. So everybody go to the book of Judges. Go to the book of Judges. Let's see how the children of Israel do. Judges chapter 17. In verse 6. There are several times in a scripture where God says, and every, way, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Does he ever say that in a good way, as a good thing? Never. So here's just one of those. Judges 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What's the significance of the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel? Didn't Israel have a king that led them into the promised land? No, they had what are called judges for 450 years right before the first king. And who was the first king? Saul. Saul. So when they're under the control of the judges who are not kings, who is there to force them to do right? Nobody. 
Answer is nobody. So because there was no king over them to exercise authority and force them to do what's right, then they did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they'll pick and choose. If they thought murder was wrong, they wouldn't do it. But if they thought adultery was right, they'd do that. They would pick and choose what they wanted to do. Let's go also in Judges to chapter 21. Verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What usually follows words like that? Judgment. Exactly. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12. Verse 5. What's wrong with doing what's right in your own eyes? Don't we all just naturally get born with the instinct to do right and observe God and follow him? Proverbs 12.5 says, The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. Will people try and lead us astray? Does the New Testament tell us over and over again to be careful and watch out for false teachers who will lead us astray? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So when every man does what's right in his own eyes, he thinks what he's doing is right and good. Does God concur? Not necessarily. And who gets to judge us in the end? Do we get to judge ourselves? Is life one of those college exams where you get to grade your own paper? Didn't you have lots of those? The professor lets you grade your paper and tell them what grade you got? Yeah. No, it didn't happen. Why do you think the professors don't let you grade your own paper and just tell them what grade you got? <laughs> cheat, 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 really? Okay, back to Deuteronomy 12. When it comes to Judgment Day, there is no cheating. God will judge us the way we deserve to be judged. Verse 9, for as yet, you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. Which means you can't worship in Jerusalem yet. There is no temple in Jerusalem yet. You don't even have possession of Jerusalem yet. So God has allowed you to do what you thought was right in your own eyes. But did God hold them responsible for the errors and sins they committed? How do you know? 
Oh, think about all Paor in the book of Numbers. When they start playing with the Moabite women and eating the sacrifices, God breaks out a plague against them. Yeah. And keep a finger here and go to the book of Hebrews, right? Chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 16 through 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he, meaning God, angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? If they didn't obey God, what did they do? They did whatever was right in their own eyes. Why? Verse 19 explains why. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And isn't that a precursor or forerunner statement as to how man may not enter God's coming kingdom because yes. of unbelief and you know the the uh, the false doctrine that's taught in some places today say that you know once you all you got to do is believe and you're you're good to go but you know Jesus or Yeshua said even the devils believe <laughs> you know so there's responsibility yeah you know, I can't do God's part. He won't do mine. Mm-hmm. Yes, to answer your question, let's go to Matthew chapter 7. The Lord explains that to us in red letters. Matthew chapter 7. If we could modify the Bible... And we can't, so don't try. I might add a sentence to verse 23. So look at Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everyone who calls Yeshua Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? They think these prove their faith. In verse 23, Messiah answers, Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who will not follow God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. The sentence I would add is that they do not practice righteousness but practice lawlessness because they lack faith the scripture is very clear salvation is by faith that's the only way you can be saved but how does God determine whether your faith is real or not you obey him. if you believe him you'll obey him where does it say that well, uh, how about 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 let's go there it was on the tip of his tongue. First John 2, verses 3 and 4. In many Bibles, 
There's a header above verse 3 that says the test of knowing him. Do you really know the Lord? John 17, 3 says to know the Lord is to have eternal life. And then somebody must come back and say, well, John, how do we know whether we truly know the Lord or not? Because he explains it further in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Which says, now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Salvation is by faith. There is no other way. But God judges our faith by our actions, just as he did the children of Israel in the wilderness. Did they see God at Mount Sinai? Well, they saw the fire. They saw the mountain tremble. They heard the voice of God with their own ears. They pleaded with Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. And yet did they obey God? They did not. And Hebrews says it's because they lacked faith. So they knew there was a God. They were afraid of God. But they didn't have faith in God that would allow them to be obedient to God. Back to Deuteronomy 12. We're up to verse 10. But when you cross over the Jordan, the Jordan what? Jordan River. Why didn't he say the Jordan River? Because they're standing right there in front of it. They know exactly what he's talking about. Why is it called the Jordan? Anybody know? It comes from the words Yerod and Dan. Yerod means to go down, and the word Dan means judge, but it also means the north. So the Jordan River is the one flowing down from the north. It flows down from Mount Hermon in Israel. When you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. At that point, God has done what he promised, right? He brought them out of Egypt and promised to bring them into the promised land. When verse 10 is satisfied, God has done his part. Verse 11 says, Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. What does the word abide mean? To dwell and never leave, right? Mm -hmm. Do I have a picture up here of Jerusalem from the air? Under this poster? Yep, I'm talking about the one with the sheen. Ah, it's this one over here, isn't it? Yeah. If you look at the city of Jerusalem from the air, it's made of three mountains with three interconnecting valleys that make the Hebrew letter Sheen, which is the letter which stands for El Shaddai, Mighty God, Almighty God. So literally, if you look at the topography of Jerusalem, God put his name on it from the very beginning. It is cool, isn't it? Okay, verse 11. Then 
there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. But they haven't gotten there yet. How do they even know that such a place exists? Because God said so. But they have to take it on faith that when they get into the land, there will be such a place. And there is such a place. And has been from the beginning. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. I have kind of a curious question since you gave the, the um, meaning of the word Jordan. Uh huh. Dan means judgment. Dan means judge. Uh-huh. The word judgment comes from that. So is there a negative connotation to that with regards to the tribe of Dan? Is there a history there? <laughs> Turn to but Genesis chapter 49. I don't mean to lead us away from where you are. But turn, us, turn us to Genesis chapter 49. Okay. We all know that in Revelation chapter 7, which is the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, that Dan is not listed. And people say, I wonder why not. The answer is actually in Genesis chapter 49, at least in my opinion it is. Let's see if we can find it. Have we all found Genesis 49? Look at verse 1. And Jacob, that's the man whose name was changed to Israel, called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. If you've not fixed it, fix your Bible. The last days should read the end of days. It's a term for the day of the Lord. That's right. In a Jewish published Bible, end of days is capitalized. Where do we find the prophecies about Dan? That's in verse 16. It says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And that's true. Which judge came from the tribe of Dan? Samson, Samson did. But now verse 17, we get to the end times. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path. When you see serpent and viper, what does that make you think of? The devil, the devil Satan. Uh-huh. That bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Which is the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. So it appears from verse 17 that Dan will be opposed to Messiah. That Dan will be against Messiah, does not want Messiah to return and establish his kingdom. And then verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. That's Jacob talking. So Jacob is waiting for the salvation of the Lord. The word salvation is Yeshua, our Messiah. So Jacob's waiting for Messiah to come, but Dan is trying to prevent it. Does that explain why he's not one of the 12 tribes from which the 144,000 come? And what country does that kind of relate to? Uh, 
I'm sorry? Uh, what modern day country does that, the tribe of Dan? The 10 tribes of the north were scattered throughout the world. We don't know exactly where they are. Okay. That's why they're called the 10 lost tribes. But God knows where they are, don't they? Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yep. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11. Let's talk a little bit about the tithe. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 23. So Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Let me make sure I don't get too far away from the microphone. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. If you're not a horse, woe is a bad thing. Why would the Lord proclaim woe to the scribes and Pharisees? Were they not good, godly people? They were not. They were hypocrites. He calls them, you brood of Satan, essentially, children of the devil. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. What are mint and anise and cumin? Herbs. Herbs and spices, right? Some of the smallest crops that would have been in Israel. So they're following the commandments on the tithe down to the itty-bitty little things. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, the Torah. Justice and mercy and faith. Hmm. So why are they so interested in observing the tithe down to the minutia if they're not interested in justice and mercy and faith? Outward, what other people think of them, and who do you suppose is dipping their hand in the till? Yes. These you ought to have done, that is the tithe, without leaving the others undone. So all the scribes and Pharisees are guilty of is picking and choosing. They'll decide which commandments are important. They'll decide which commandments they'll follow. And the ones they don't want to follow, they simply don't. And look at what they refuse to follow, justice, mercy, and faith. Which is most important? Faith. Yeah. Because if without faith, you can't provide justice. And without faith, is it possible to please God? Not at all. Not at all. Give me a chapter. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Yeah. <laughs> it was on the tip of his tongue. <laughs> Go to the book of Luke, chapter 11. <laughs> Luke, chapter 11. <laughs> Verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So that's essentially from the very same discussion of Messiah. So why are the words different? I think they're parallel because you have to have love in order to have They are parallel, uh-huh. Without the love of God, you have no faith. 
Yes. I think maybe to me, and I, I, I apply this to try and apply this in my life, that it's saying the same thing but in a different way. And I think that it means to not just learn something by rote. Okay, not mm -hmm. just apply something by rote, but to take it inside and make it part of myself so that I'm not like a little parrot just repeating things. Yeah. You know, that it's in my heart and it means something to me that I can apply it, you know, and, and uh, not necessarily paraphrase it so much in concept that, you know, but to make it my own. Yep. So now let's step back. Step back in history. Which was there when Messiah said this, Matthew or Luke? Say again. When Messiah said these words, who was present listening? Matthew. Matthew. Was Luke there? No. No. Then how does Luke know what was said since he wasn't there? Because he listened to the, the, uh, the, the witness of the others. Got to be more specific. Who did Luke travel with? Matthew. No. Luke traveled with Paul. Paul, Paul, right. right. Okay. So Luke heard Paul teach as Paul went around, and Luke recorded what he remembered Paul having said. So Matthew was there, and Luke is getting secondhand information from Paul, who wasn't there either, but has heard the other disciples. So it's kind of third hand. And that's why it's a paraphrase. He can't remember the exact words, right. but he's got the concept right. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, I understand that and accept that and agree with it. Uh, when I said paraphrase a minute ago, it, it kind of, <clears throat> kind of, to, to me, it gives connotations of, you know, a lot, uh, in some instances that a person might be reading something from a any particular writing and but changing it put it in his own words so as not to appear to uh, you know just be reading by rote. Yeah. So put, I, put it I, down I, as it is meaningful to him. Yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. But wasn't Paul there for some of it? Because he Wait. was there at the, the stoning of Stephen. Paul was there at the stoning of Stephen, but he wasn't there listening to Messiah necessarily. Well, we don't know that for sure. That's why I said necessarily. Yeah. Yes, Evans. Um, it just so happened that this morning um, my reading was the, uh, the beginning of Luke, and I was very struck by the, uh, in a way I hadn't been before, by the, the, the first uh, couple of, uh, three verses. Oh, well, four verses, that he said he's uh, carefully investigated these things from the beginning, because lots of people have written accounts. So I think he's not just been listening to Paul, he's been listening to all sorts of people and investigating. Yeah, Luke's an historian. I think that says that he can be very reliable. We can rely on Luke. Yeah, it doesn't disagree with what Matthew said. It just carries the meaning without having the very same words. But you're right. Yeah, and a friend said to, said to me once that, um, you know, if you listen to someone over a period of time, 
they will often say um, the same things in different contexts in slightly different ways. Yeah. So, um, you know, they can both be um, uh, uh, quotes, as it were. Um, True. You see what I mean? You know, you get yep. used to a certain preacher, he will come up with similar stories and whatnot in different contexts. Right. So let's go to Luke 18. In Luke 18, Messiah tells a parable. And the parable includes a Pharisee. Luke 18, the, the parable begins in verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Who's he talking about? Any idea? The scribes and the Pharisees, yeah. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee would consider himself absolutely righteous in the eyes of God. And the tax collector knows he's a sinner. That's the key to the story here. Verse 7, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The key verse I want to look at is verse 12. I fast twice a week. Does God command us to fast twice a week? No. So whose requirement is it to fast twice a week? That's man's. That's a Pharisaic requirement. Also, he says, I give tithes of all that I possess. Is that a requirement of God that we give a tithe of all that we possess? No. Answer is no. The tithe was the increase of the agricultural products. So again, the Pharisee is bragging that I do so much more than God requires. That shows that I'm so much better than these other people. Does God look at it that way? If you set aside his commandments to do your own man-made commandments, does that make you more holy or righteous? No, he said he was praying to himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he says he's praying to himself. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. The tithe is mentioned four times in Hebrews chapter 7 between verses 3 and 9. We'll start in verse 1 so we get the context of the story. For this Melchizedek, again, Melchizedek means what? King of righteousness. He's also called here King of Salem. What does Salem mean? 
peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Priest of the most high God, he is both king and priest. There's only one person in the scripture that is both king and priest, and who is that? That's our Messiah Yeshua, who's also the king of righteousness and the king of peace. It says, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, that is a tenth of everything that was captured from the defeat of the priests. First being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Selah, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. The Jewish sages say, aha, this is Shem. Shem's dead, okay. And we know his mother and father. His father's name was Noah. So is this Shem? No. This is our Messiah, Yeshua. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the Torah, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. What does verse 8 tell us? Was Melchizedek a mortal man? No, he was not. But there he receives him, of whom it is witnessed that he lives, that he still lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, that is under the law, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. How long has Messiah been? Forever. Back to Deuteronomy 12. Why was he called Melchizedek? Why is he where called Melchizedek? He, well, if he's Yeshua, then what, where did the Melchizedek come from? He's the king of righteousness. What is the name? Who named Yeshua Yeshua? His mother 2,000 years ago. You should call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. So he's referred to a lot in the Old Testament. It'll say the salvation of the Lord. People just didn't know what that meant. It sounds a title. No? What's that? So it's a title? Melchizedek yeah, it's a title. A title? Okay. Mm -hmm. okay, I got it. Yep. You may have said that, and I just didn't catch it. Is the tenth he's referring to from Abraham, does that refer to the remnant that he will receive? Is he, is it, receiving from Abraham a, the tenth that he's receiving from him? Is that the remnant? Or is that an actual amount? It was an actual amount. If we go back to Genesis, when Abraham and his 200 herdsmen defeat the armies of the five kings, and they capture all that gold and silver and animals, he gave a tenth of the booty that was captured in battle to Melchizedek. They're very careful 
not to call it a tithe, even though it's the same word. Because the tithe, they refer to that which God requires. And of course, that which Abraham gave was not something that was required. It was just something he did out of the goodness of his heart. Okay, back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We are up to verse 12, which is not 144. You can't multiply them together. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Ah, the Levites were scattered throughout the land. Judah was given a, a plot of land. Simeon, a piece of land. Issachar, a piece of land. Levite wasn't given a piece of land. He's just given cities scattered throughout all the rest of the tribes. There were so many of the priests and Levites that they didn't all serve in the temple at the same time except at the pilgrim festivals when all Israel was required to be there. Other than that, there's just 1 24th of them on duty at the temple, and the rest of them, the majority, are spread out throughout Israel. Well, if they can't grow food, and they can't herd cattle and sheep for themselves, how do they eat? From the tithe and the offerings of the people. That's what this Deuteronomy verse 12 of chapter 12 is talking about is make sure you don't let them starve when they're not serving in the temple. What was their duty and obligation when they were amongst the people? To teach Torah. Were they supposed to charge the people? No, but they did. How do we know? Let's go to Malachi. Malachi. Oh, boy. Oh, you said Micah? Yeah. Remember, I can't hear out of my left ear at the moment. <laughs> Micah 3. Micah 3. Verse 11. This is one of the charges that God brings against Israel. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord amongst us? No harm can come upon us. What's the problem with the priests teaching for pay? Ah, money tends to influence doctrine, doesn't it? So the priests were entitled to share in the tithes and offerings, but they're not allowed to charge people for teaching the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Let's go to Matthew 10, verse 8. What did the Lord tell his apostles when he sent them out to teach? Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. We'll start in 7 for context. As ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. 
Freely you have received, freely give. But when the priests start teaching for money, what if the people don't have money to pay? Then they didn't teach. And if the parents are not teaching the children as they're supposed to, and the Levites are not teaching the people, what do the people quickly do? Do whatever's right in their own eyes. And there we get off into trouble once more. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 12. Verse 13. Take heed to yourself. What's that mean to take heed to yourself? Pay attention. Pay attention. Be careful. Guard yourself. Walk circumspectly. Walk circumspectly. That you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see. But in a place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Talking about the... Sacrifices, the offerings, the tithes, the pilgrim festivals, all those kind of things. So what if you live a long way from Jerusalem? Let's pick a place, Nazareth. It's about 75 miles from Jerusalem. Does that mean you can only eat meat? when you go up to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice or offering to the Lord? The answer is no. Let's come back to the scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and God will tell us that. Verse 15 says, However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates. Whatever your heart desires. Does that mean pigs? No, it does not. And the word heart there is not the word heart. It's the word for soul. It's nephesh. The word for heart is lev or levav. So whatever your soul desires, meaning as much as you want to eat, of lambs, of deer, of cattle, according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it of the gazelle and the deer alike. So when you go up to Jerusalem and offer your tithes and offerings and you eat from the sacrifices, can you do that if you're in a state of uncleanness? No, no you must be in a state of ceremonial cleanness. But at your own house, if you slaughter a lamb for your family, then anyone can eat from it, whether they're in a state of Levitical cleanliness or whether they're not. For some reason, some people look at this and say, we can eat the unclean or the clean. That's not what it says. It says the unclean or the clean person can eat from the animal that has been slaughtered at the house. That's not a sacrifice. That's the ability to take a lamb or a bull or a deer, kill it, and eat it at the house. I have a curious question. You have a curious question. Go ahead. On a practical level at our home. Okay, so we get the, the best source we can for, I'll just say like ground chuck or something. Okay, get the best ground chuck you can buy. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and when you get it fresh, of course, 
depending on where you get it from, it might have things that color it. Yes, but it's not blood. And, okay, right. But as it begins to break down, if, if you keep it in the refrigerator, it, it you know will tend to bleed out. I'm going to use that term. You know, in, in, and I always keep it in a tray because I don't like to clean up a mess afterwards. But it, you know, and it'll turn brown because it's oxidizing. So, are we supposed to? I mean, for myself, we drain that off as best we can. But still, what is the difference between using that meat fresh and red and you don't think anything about it and fry it in the skillet and whatever, as, a as opposed to a couple of days later it is you know, beginning to deteriorate and then we drain that off. What's the difference? You're not asking a biblical question. That's, I'm not? Okay. No, you're but, not. Um, I have a friend who's a chemist who says that which is bleeding off is not blood. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. He told me what it is, but it's oh. not blood. So. But I, I had a, a cow slaughtered, and the person that was doing it for us, he said, well, I'm going to put the blood in with it because it tastes better. Oh, no, no, no. Don't let him do that. No, no. That's, but that's what, so oh, uh, how, do you know it's, how do you know then that they're not doing that all the time? It may not be what the chemist said. I haven't inspected her meat, no. But from what she was describing, that is not blood. If they were putting the blood in it to keep the, the food tasting better, I would never eat that. In fact, the Bible's going to say don't ever. To make it even worse, you remember McDonald's got caught. They were putting blood in the French fries to improve the taste of the French fries. But they got caught, and they had to stop doing that. Um, there's a problem if you eat the blood with the meat, and here it is in Deuteronomy. Now we're getting to a biblical thing. If they're putting blood into your meat, then stop buying the meat there. Yeah. So verse 16 says, only, there's a restriction. You can eat meat, but only shall not eat the blood you shall pour it on the earth like water. If an animal is slaughtered according to biblical requirements, the blood is drained. So that's when there's, there's still red liquid that, that will form at the bottom of the, the, the package, but it's not blood. If they're putting the blood in it to make it taste better, then it's not kosher to eat at all. I shouldn't use the word kosher. It's not biblically acceptable as food. You shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. And God will tell us many, many times not to eat the blood. Let's go to Leviticus chapter. No, let's start all the way back in Genesis. We'll start at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 9, that far back. By the way, there is a custom among hunters in the United States that when you kill your first deer, you drink its blood. God said, thou shalt not. That's usually people who don't drink the blood will try and get somebody else to do it. Just a young hunter who has not ever been out there before. It's, it's, it's a terribly. Some places that they require it, 
but it's usually just picking on somebody trying to get them to do something. It's a terribly sinful thing. Yes. Okay. We'll start with Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. We may as well start at verse 1. May as well open the door. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. People stop reading there and so say, see, God said we could eat pigs. But you've got to read another sentence. I have given you all things even as the green herbs. In verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So from the very first time, God allows mankind to eat animal flesh. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, the point I was making on verse 3, I've given you all things even as the green herbs. What does that mean? You must go back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God tells us that men can eat what? Verse 29. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. So God says you can eat the fruit from any and every tree. Why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? Because they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He just said here you can eat from every tree. Ah, this is the general grant of authority, and then there's the limitation. But of that tree, they cannot eat, right? So that's in chapter 3. And the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it. So God first gives a grant of authority, You can eat from every tree, and he says, but, not from the restricted trees. So when God says you can eat from the animals, does he then give a restriction as to which animals? Actually, the restriction comes first. Look in chapter 7 of Genesis. Verse 2. How many of you were taught growing up that God took two of each animal and put it on the ark? Yeah. It's not true, right? Look at chapter 7, verse 2. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, and it's actually seven pairs. The Hebrew reads Sheva, Sheva, Ishva, Ishto. So seven pairs of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each or one pair of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. So in chapter 9, two chapters later, when God says you can eat from animals, does Noah know which animals are clean or unclean? Yes. The answer is yes, he does. Are there any animals that you can, that you can eat? Well, never mind that. 
Let's just go back to Leviticus chapter 17. Because the issue is, can you eat the blood with the meat? And the answer is no. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 to 14. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 to 14. This tells us how important it is to God that we not eat the blood with the meat. It says, And whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who are the strangers? Those are the Gentiles who have chosen to turn away from pagan idolatry and to worship the true and living God. So in whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the stranger who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Why does God repeat over and over again, nobody, Jew or Gentile alike, nobody? Let's keep reading then. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. Because some people would say, Wayne, you're just reading from the Old Testament. It changed. It changed. No, it didn't change. Eating blood symbolizes pagan idolatry. It makes you abominable before the Lord. It characterizes pagan idolatry. It does. That's the point of Acts chapter 15, isn't it? Acts chapter 15 the issue in Acts chapter 15 is not should Gentiles keep the commandments of God after they get saved. Too many people think that's it. But verse 1 tells us what the issue is. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Jewish theology was you're saved through circumcision. Is that True or untrue? Untrue. untrue. We're saved by faith. So they resolve that issue and says, no, Jew or Gentile alike, you're saved by faith. So then they turn their attention of, so what do we teach the Gentiles that are turning to God? That's in verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Why don't they say who have turned past tense? Because it's an ongoing process. Turning, they're in a process. They haven't been taught the commandment statutes and judgments of God growing up, so they don't know what to do. 
Now they want to know how do they learn. So it says, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. So that would include food sacrifice to idols. From sexual immorality, because the pagan temples were full of temple prostitutes and sexually immoral conduct. From things strangled that is killed in a non-biblical manner where the blood is not removed from the body. And from blood. So that is the, the concept of eating or drinking the blood with the meat. So those four things characterize the worship in the pagan temples. And we have to teach them not to do those things. Then, verse 21 says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. If they will put aside these things that characterize pagan worship, they can come into the synagogue and listen to the reading of the Torah scrolls so they can learn that which God commanded. Not to overwhelm someone with things that uh, you got to cleanse out. You got to cleanse out the dirt before you can, you know, things clean be put in. You got to cleanse the vessel so, yep. that, so that you don't contaminate the good stuff that you would put in later. Right. And if you're not willing to set aside the things that characterize pagan worship, you're not truly turning to God. Okay, let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 38. Can anybody say Gog and Magog? Yeah. Ezekiel 38. Thirty-three. Thirty-three, sorry. Can't read my own writing this morning. Ezekiel 33, verse 25. We are approaching the time of Gog and Magog. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, it's not actually what the Hebrew says. Thus says, my Lord, the Lord. You eat meat with blood. You lift up your eyes toward idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? So the Lord says, you're doing these abominable things. What are they? Eat meat with blood. Lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood. What's God going to do? He's going to take them out of the land and put them into captivity. God says when you do these abominable things, and when God calls something an abomination, he means it's horribly detestable in his sight. He says you cannot then live in my land. Why do these catastrophes come upon Israel? We just read. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19. We read from Leviticus 17 a minute ago, but this is Leviticus 19, verse 26.
you shall not eat anything with the blood. Notice how anything's in italics. That means it's not there in the original. It simply says, you shall not eat with the blood. Nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. Divination and soothsaying were associated with witchcraft. God puts in the same sentence, eating blood. Leviticus 19.18 forbids tattoos, in case anybody was wondering where that is. Leviticus 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. Do you realize cuttings has resurged in our day and age? I went to a pizza restaurant up in Ellijay this past week, and the server who took the order had just parallel scars down her arm all the way down from taking the razor blade and cutting. Very pagan practice, but it's really made a resurgence. Okay, back to Leviticus chapter 19. Oh, let's not. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12. We've read enough from Leviticus 19. We're up to verse 17. Yes, sir. Just to clarify Good and loud. Just to clarify your mind. When we're talking about eating the meat with the blood. We're talking about eating the meat with the blood. Not, it's not having drained the blood from the animal before it was cut up. It's not a juicy steak, no. Deuteronomy 12, we're up to verse 17. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or your oil, of the firstborn of your herd or your flock, of any of your offerings which you vow, or your freewill offerings, or the heave offering of your hand. So those must go where? To Jerusalem. So he said, you can kill an animal and eat it at your home, but not if it's intended to be a sacrifice or an offering to the Lord. Yes, sir? Can you explain what a heave offering is? A heave offering, what is that? The answer is you pick the thing up. It could be meat, it could be grain, it could be wine, it could be oil, and you literally wave it before the Lord. And then you eat it in the Lord's presence. So you don't put any of it on the altar. You simply... Say thank you for this. And then you can take it somewhere else and cook it. Is that the idea? Or you, do you... you eat it there before the Lord. You don't take it back to Nazareth to cook no, it. I mean, no, like you could take it out of the temple. Yeah, you take it out of the temple and cook it and eat it. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Brother Wayne? Yes, ma'am. What about the Levites that were, are within your city that, didn't, that aren't ministering at the temple? Uh, there's a portion of the tithe that goes to the Levites and priests that are scattered throughout the people. Thank you. Yep. 
Okay, verse 18. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses. So those sacrifices and offerings, whatever kind, those you eat in Jerusalem. When you take the fatted calf and fix it because the prodigal son came home, that's not a sacrifice or an offering. It says, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all to which you put your hands. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. What does it mean to forsake the Levite? means don't bring them the tithe. What if you don't bring them the tithe? Then they either don't eat or they must leave the temple services and not leave the worship unto God. That's where you get Malachi chapter 3. So let's go to Malachi chapter 3. I have heard Malachi chapter 3 preached many, many times. Always from the standpoint of why didn't you put more money in the offering plate? Yep. Yes, ma'am. The Levites that are scattered out. Were all the tithes given to the temple and divvied out? The answer is no. There's a portion of the tithe that is distributed to the Levites in the land. So, would I, if. if like you said before, there's different cities and different provinces where the Levites would have those cities. So if, you, if the area around those cities would provide for that. Correct. And then that way. Yeah, they're the ones being taught by the Levites in that area. They're the ones who feed the Levites in that area. So, so they would go to the, the synagogue and bring those ties to the ones there or maybe you know, their own houses or what have you. Mm -hmm. Correct. And, and provide it to them in that fashion. Yep. And, then, and so I, I, I remember maybe, maybe correctly that in Jerusalem that, the, that they had, or, or around each of the cities, they had some land, but that was for the grazing of their cattle and flocks. Is that correct? For the Levites. Flocks. No, the Levites didn't have cattle and flocks. That's why the rest of Israel have to feed them. But didn't they graze something that was okay to sacrifice in the temple? Yes, the shepherds in the shepherd's field there by Bethlehem where Messiah was born, they were raising animals to be sacrificed in the temple. So is that like if everybody brings their firstlings, they don't slaughter them, they raise them to be sacrificed later? Um... You couldn't bring a lamb that was born farther away than the shepherd's field at Bethlehem and have it be a kosher sacrifice. So you would come and buy lambs there for the sacrifice. I think we're getting a little bit off. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll get it. Okay. There's a reason Messiah was born in that shepherd's field. Okay. Brother, what about three-year time? Was yes, ma'am. Where the people brought it in, in, in the villages, and all, they set up places in each city for the Levites to have food. 
Yes, that's what we've been talking about, is that there's a portion of the tithe that goes to the Levites that are scattered throughout the land. It's called the tithe of the third year. We just hadn't given it the title yet. But you are correct, Miss Betty. Okay, Malachi 3, starting in verse 8. This is about the time when the people stopped bringing the tithes and offerings to the temple because they were afraid they wouldn't have enough food to eat if they did. They were not willing to trust God to provide for them. So in Malachi 3, it says, Well, a man robbed God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And God's answer is, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. And what is the curse? No rain. No rain, no rain means famine. Famine means not enough food. It says, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. That's the area of the temple complex where the food was stored. That there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So if the people would bring this, the tithes and offerings as God commanded, then the priests and Levites would conduct the temple services and God would provide the rain in its season so that everybody would have plenty. When they stop bringing them, then the priests and Levites leave the temple service to raise food for their own families. And then the rains stop coming in their season and famine comes. Question. How, how, in the year, seventh year of sabbatical rest for the land, how does that apply? Uh, I mean, is, is that in that year where you don't sow and you don't reap, you let the land rest. So... How, in the sixth year, do you provide a double portion? Or in the first year, do you provide a double portion? Or and you, you skip that seventh year? Or how did, how did that work? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm I know, I know. I'm just trying to think of the best way to answer it. In the Sabbath year, you do not plant the fields. Right. But you still have sheep and cattle right. and goats and you bring the tithes and offerings from the sheep and the cattle and the goats. Right. When the sixth year, when God provides a double portion of the wheat and the wine and the olives, when you're tithing on the increase, if you have twice as much increase, then you bring twice as much in the tithe. Right. Right. So, so then, the, you wouldn't provide, in the seventh year, you, the Sabbath year, you wouldn't provide a, a, a herbal portion of the tithe. Right, but there's still the meat. But there's still the meat. So, uh, okay. You can, you can go to the fields and, and eat from the field, right? Is that correct? But That's you correct. You can't reap it, take it, put it in storage. Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay, back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 12, we're up to verse 20. Did God promise to give Israel all the land all at once? No. No, he promised portion by portion as they grew to fill in the land, he would keep pushing their boundaries out. 
So verse 20 says, when the Lord your God enlarges your border as he has promised you, that is the border keeps getting pushed out as the children of Israel increase in number, and you say, let me eat meat because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. So were they limited to meat once a week? No. Could they have meat five days a week if they wanted to? Did they generally eat meat five days a week? The answer is no. So what was the diet mostly? Mostly was bread and vegetables and such things. But when they wanted meat, God said you can eat meat. So this, this totally goes against the whole Monday, Thursday fast because he didn't say eat as much as you eat, want to eat, except on Monday, Thursday. Right, that Monday, Thursday fast was simply a machinations of the rabbis. So verses 20 to 22 are about lambs, goats, bulls, deer, etc. Again, not pigs or unclean animals of any kind. Verse 21 says, If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter from your herd and from your flock which the Lord has given you, just as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires. Just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them, and the unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. Why does God tell us over and over and over again that you can't eat the blood? It's the life of the animal. Did God know McDonald's would one day start adding blood to its french fries to make them more flavorful? Also symbolizes pagan worship. Are we to worship God as the pagans worship their gods? We are not. Verse 24. Well, if you can't eat the blood, you can't drink the blood, what do you do with it? You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it. That's three verses in a row. God says, thou shalt not eat it. Do you think he meant don't eat it? He meant don't eat it. That it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings which you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. So it's only the holy things, the offerings, the tithes, the sacrifices that have to go to Jerusalem. Any other kind of animal that is clean to eat, you can eat in your own hometown. So uh, where it says you shall pour it on the ground like blood, uh, like water, does that mean collect it in a basin or something and then pour it out? Or like if, if I harvest a deer and I hang it up between two trees and, in the woods before I go to drag it home. And, and where does the blood drain? Drains let, onto let the it, ground. It that if it just drains out on the ground right there, then that's fine. That's fine. Okay. As long as you cover it over. Cover it over. Mm -hmm. Is there, when, when we were in Leviticus 17 verses 10 to 14, talks about not eating the blood and I think 
the last part of that verse was, I wrote down, the blood makes atonement for the soul. So, What did they put on the altar? And what did they put on the mercy seat? You know, when Yeshua was on the cross, that that it's an abomination to the Lord because Yeshua is our atonement, and it was his blood that was spilled on the ground. I guess what I'm asking is, is it an abomination because of the sacredness of what Yeshua, the God's son, did for us, was going to do for us? Is that why eating blood's an abomination? No, it's because that was a pagan practice. They did that to their gods. And so it would. And the Lord said, "Don't do to me okay. Yeah. what they do to their gods." What did Messiah do with his blood? He took it and put it on the altar in heaven and on the mercy seat in heaven. According to the transubstantiation, he fed it to his disciples. Yeah, 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 yeah. We know better than that. Okay. You're just yanking a chain. Okay. I know. Verse 27. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of the sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat. Now, let me explain this a little bit. It sounds kind of like you put the meat up on the altar, and as it's cooking, you pour the blood on it. That's not what it means. The top of the altar, was it a solid stone surface? Or was it a solid meat surface? Or was it solid glass? What was it? It was a grate. And when you pour the blood in the grate, where does it go? Onto the ground. That's exactly right. Into, into the burning coals and such? No, onto the ground underneath it. Verse 28. Observe and obey all these words which I command you that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. But this is not the normal forever. You know, in Hebrew, there are several different ways of writing things that get translated into English as forever. This one is ad olam. Ad olam. Ad means until, and olam means forever. So it's a way of saying this is a continuing commandment and process that will never, ever end. So when is it okay to drink blood? Never. never. And then it goes on in verse 20 to say, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Ad Olam means, Ad means until. And Olam means forever. So it's not just forever, it's until forever. Until or as far as means a process that never ends. It never stops being true. So other than that, how can we know that we in the New Testament church are supposed to continue to follow the practice of avoiding the blood? It's one of the qualifications in Acts chapter 15 to teach all the Gentiles throughout the world that are turning to God not to do this. Well, and then Yeshua was 
railing against the churches. He's saying you're teaching the people to eat things sacrificed. And then Yeshua in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 rails against the churches who are teaching people to eat things sacrificed to idols and things that are unclean. Absolutely true. And in Matthew 4, 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So back to Deuteronomy 12, we're up to, ver whoops, I see a number one out there. Let's see what this question is. The odd olam, or what words that we see in our English, please? The word forever in verse 28 is the Hebrew phrase, Ad Olam. Okay. In verse 28, why does God say that it may go well with you and your children after you? Is there a blessing for obedience? How many of you would like to be blessed? Me too. So verse 29 then says... When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, you displace them and dwell in their land. Who were these nations that dwelt in the land of Canaan that are going to get dispossessed? What do we call them? The ites, the seven ites of Genesis chapter 15. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 15 and see why. God is driving them out of the land and giving it to the children of Israel. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. But in the fourth generation, they, that is the children of Israel, shall return here, that is the land of Canaan. For the iniquity, what does iniquity mean? Lawlessness. Lawlessness of the Amorites is not yet complete. In verse 18, it tells us the Amorites are made up of seven specific peoples. Verse 18 says, On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Avram, that's Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So these ites, if you will, in verses 18 to 21, are included in the phrase, the Amorites. So why does God not allow the Amorites to remain in the land? Because their lawlessness is now complete. Does God respect persons? No. So if the children of Israel come into the land of Canaan and start acting like the Canaanites, will God allow them to dwell in the land? Answer is no. That's why the three captivities, the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and the Roman diaspora. Because when the children of Israel start acting like the Amorites, they get pushed out of the land just as the Amorites did. Okay, so back way, to yes, some. I know you've answered this before. I just can't remember. Here uh, in Genesis 15, it lists ten nations. Do they dispossess three before they go into the promised land, and that's why it's seven after that point? Because there's ten nations. When you count all the nations, it's 
verses 18 to 21, that's 10, and uh, then when they get into the land, is it 7 left? Remember when they came into the land, they made a treaty with some that they weren't supposed to and let them stay? Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, God told them not to, but, well, they boo-booed. They didn't seek the Lord's counsel. Yeah, they boo-booed. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 12. That was verse 29. So the Lord is going to drive the Amorites out of the land. And when he does, verse, 20, verse 30 says, Take heed, be careful, watch what you do. Take heed yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them, meaning that you're not tempted to do the pagan practices that they did that got them pushed out of the land after they're destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. How did the pagan nations, the Amorites, serve their gods? They drank blood, that's one thing. They ate food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality. They would cut down evergreen trees, bring them into the house and put them on basins and decorate them with silver and gold. They would color eggs, do all kinds of things that God said, don't do such things to me. So when they, when they say, how did these nations serve their gods, I also will do likewise. Verse 31 says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Meaning, as the Canaanites worship their gods, don't you do any of that to me. It says, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. Did they sacrifice pigs? They did. Did they eat the pigs? They did. Did they drink the blood? They did. All kinds of things that God says is an abomination, they did. It says, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Did the children of Israel ever adopt the the practice of as they were going up to Jerusalem to worship God, they would stop in the Hinnom Valley and sacrifice a child to Moloch. So they did learn the ways of the pagans. They did use them in their worship of God, and God said, don't you do that. So why did they get sent out into captivity? Because they were acting like the Amorites. Verse 32 says very specifically, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. So when God gave us his commandments, did he expect us to do them? Yes, did he expect us to add tens of thousands of man-made rules and regulations to them like the Pharisees did? The answer is no. To add to nor take away from means don't deviate to the left or to the right. Is this the first time God told us not to add to it or take away from it? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 4.2. Yes, in Revelation also, but Deuteronomy 4.2. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. 
But wait a minute, Wayne, don't get carried away. Didn't Paul say that our faith makes the law void? Doesn't it? Let's go to Romans 3.31. Or did I leave out a word? Wait a minute. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. That little knot makes a difference, huh? Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. But didn't he say in chapter 10 that the law ended? Romans 10.4. For Messiah is the end of the law. See right there it says the law ended. Nope, that word end is goal. So Messiah is the goal of the law. Or the purpose of the law is to lead us to Messiah. Hmm. Is that why in Matthew chapter 7 lawlessness is a bad thing? Indeed. Okay, how much time do we have left? Let's start another chapter. We still have three minutes. Chapter 13, verse 1. Uh oh. This one is a deep chapter, isn't it? So, given that we only have three minutes, let's not start Deuteronomy 13. Let us look instead in the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 5, establishes a very important principle. What if? The law was abolished when Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, as I've heard so many preachers teach. Verse 13 says, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So if the law was abolished, there hasn't been a sinner since then. What does the scripture tell us? Who sinned and comes short of the glory of God? All of us. So that's why Paul in Romans 6 leads back with a question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? May genoito, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, when I was growing up in the church, I always wondered what is sin? And the answer I always got from the pastors was, sin is missing the mark. It's an archery term. Since I wasn't an archer, I figured I was doing okay. <laughs> but how does the Bible define sin? What is it? Romans 3.20 tells you what sin is. What's that? Romans 3.20 says what sin is. Romans 3.20? Let's look at Romans 3.20. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight, for the law is the what? Knowledge the knowledge of sin. The law is the knowledge of sin, which leads us to 1 John 3, 4, which defines what sin is. 
Sin is what? Lawlessness. In Greek, anomia, which means acting contrary to what God commanded in the commandment, statutes, and judgments. All right, we've hit the end of our time, so let's close in prayer.